took it back to Sleep for Performance Radio Season 3, Episode 4. Today I'm joined by the newly minted PhD, Oscar Lederman. Lederman. What's Lederman? That's right. Because in the episode we actually discussed this, his background, which I'll leave you to listen to in the episode. If it's not, maybe... Let me look up where I came from. Okay, in this episode, our conversation was really centered around does exercise improve sleep quality in individuals with mental illness, a systematic review, and a meta-analysis. So the reason I had Oscar on the podcast, because I actually read Oscar's paper a few months ago, and I was quite intrigued by this, and the relationship between sleep and mental health. And this systematic review and meta-analysis was, was quite good. I was going to do it as an audio abstract, but it was actually too good to just leave as an audio abstract for like 10 minutes. And I, I wasn't going to do it justice. It was a real interesting paper. I had a great conversation with Oscar in this, and he comes at this from a different angle. Being an exercise physiologist, you know, and looking at the relationship here with, um, you know, can you know, exercise really be one of those things that can be used as an intervention with mental illness? So goes quite in depth into this um it's not an area of my expertise in terms of mental health although i do have some i suppose which we call working knowledge around it and the relationship in a broader health sense but oscar really delves into this and um it was a pretty cool um episode uh, thanks to oscar for doing this as well because he had just recently finished his phd at the university of new south wales and congratulations to Oscar on finishing that. Great achievement. Well done. Yeah, he's uh, going back into uh, a lot of work ahead of him around this area. So quite impressive. So as always, before the episode kicks off, we have a small ad here from Nordic Fitness. Remember that the code here is SLEEP, D 20 If you wish to get 20% off at checkout into cart, just enter in that code and you should get the discount there on that SLEEP recovery specialist course from nordic fitness and check out some other stuff there by nordic fitness as always you can follow us at sleepforperformance.com.au on the website there's plenty of blogs up there we have monthly blogs monthly episodes and other stuff as well you can sign up as well for the monthly newsletter that contains more information that may not always be on the website other appearances by myself or other information there from the broader sort of uh, sleep and performance community so keep an eye on the newsletter it just comes out once once a month we're not going to spam you every week like I have done in the past so we just once a month we'll try and roll that into one uh, newsletter okay on to the episode exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health however both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten yet even more integral to our health namely sleep the Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. Improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training, reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more for further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Oscar, how are you doing? Yes, good. Thanks, Ian. How are you? Not too bad. So, I am the king of butchering names. How do you pronounce your last name? Letterman. Yes. Letterman. It's an Austrian, Austrian surname, which translates to Leatherman. We have a history of leather making in our family, so... Oh, it's not like not from. like the letterman, like the tool, but actual letter itself. Yeah, use with the D. Yes, ah. not, not not the double T. Yes. So Aust- Austrian background. So you sprachen sprachen Sie Deutsch? Uh, nein, not nein. quite. <laughs> uh, I can do the accent. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so what your family is originally is, is your family originally from Austria and then moved to Australia is that what happened so I've got a bit of a mixed background so um, Austrian and Egyptian grandparents and they both came from their respective countries and met here in Australia um, and then on the other side of the family is is Australian and New Zealand so a bit of a mudblood bit of a mixed background Australia, New Zealand, and then on the other side you have Egyptian and Austrian. Wow, what an eclectic mix. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty is. interesting. <laughs> but your first name, Oscar, um, what, I could be wrong here, but is Oscar generally classified as a Jewish name? I have a Jewish background. So my, my dad on the Egyptian and the Austrian side were Jewish. Oh. Um, but I was being brought up, but I don't think it is. I think it's used across lots of different cultures, Oscar. My parents just liked the name. I think it was cool at that time. And they um they wanted to go for something that was slightly not as common, and I think I think Oscar and on Oliver was the other option. But yeah, I, I grew up in Sydney, so I was very much went to a Catholic school and brought up in um in that sort of a setting as well. So I don't really identify with any religious background. Yeah, man, you've got you've got you've got every mix in there. You could, you could be offended every which way you turn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or open-minded, which, whichever way you like to take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could that could that could work in your favor, I suppose, uh, in some in some ways. But um, yeah, Oscar, Oscar is actually a name that's coming back into uh, into play. I see a lot of young kids now being named Oscar. I just remember I hear the word Oscar, I just think of Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street, growing up in the early eighties. So yeah, uh, yeah, I get that a bit. I also looking around everywhere when I walk into parks because a lot of people have started naming their dogs Oscars, unfortunately. So. <laughs> Oscar, here, boy. And then you just come running. And that's, yeah. that's, that's a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my agility has improved. <laughs> so, Oscar, we didn't bring you on to talk about your name and ethnic backgrounds and diversity. Um, we did bring you on to talk about your scientific work. Oscar, congratulations, I suppose, off the, uh, first off the bat. Just before Christmas, you handed in your PhD thesis. Can you tell us a little bit about that PhD thesis and, and what you were looking at? Sure. So I guess I should, I should start by saying I'm an exercise physiologist. So for most people that don't know, essentially, we're not personal trainers and we're not physiotherapists. We're exercise professionals that work on using exercise as medicine to treat people with chronic health conditions. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, osteoporosis. And, and I work within a, a more of a recent, more of a unique setting with patients with a, with a mental illness. So um, I became interested in that work throughout my university degree after a couple of lectures I had from, from um, who, who then on became my supervisor, Simon Rosenbaum. Also, I had, my mother was a psychologist, so I became pretty interested in mental health early on. I, had a, I was a elite soccer player and I had a lot of friends going through mental health issues and one of which a close friend experienced a psychotic episode. So it became interesting to me mm. about mental health and I didn't really realize it was an area for exercise professionals and I looked up some of the, the research and the evidence and there wasn't too much out at that time. About This was about five or six years ago. So I became interested and, and I approached a couple of people to see if there was you know work within that area because I was, I was keen to work in that sort of a setting. And um, um, it just so happened that there was a research being conducted in Sydney looking at young people with first episode psychosis and, and the implications of lifestyle interventions, including exercise and diet. So I got on board with that team. And, and, um, and when I started working in the mental health hospital, I became interested in, in actually looking at doing some research. And that's what led to my, my thesis. So the topic of my research is how we can 
improve the, the physical and mental health of young people specifically in the early stages of psychosis through exercise and, and lifestyle interventions. So um, that's more that's the broad overarching theme of my thesis. That's really interesting and very topical at the moment, um, you know, in, in the media, which is great that people are talking about. But also as well, what I like about what you said there is, you know, first of all, you, you have a passion for it. It sounds like you you went into it. You didn't uh, go into it because of money or accolades or fame into that area. Like you didn't chase it for, for that. You chased it because you were interested in it and you could see the application. But also what I really like about your thesis, it's looking at practical strategies. You're not sort of just generally researching a problem to quantify it or, or shape it up. You're actually looking at, you know, like you say, to improve physical and mental health of young people. They're the key things that's coming out there. So very, uh, very interesting and very applicable and could be applied into a range of different settings. With some of the, the research, when you started off at the start, Oscar, were you just looking at people who were potentially at risk of psychotic episodes or were you looking more broadly across anybody who may have, you know, mental health diagnosed issues or even common mental disorders as well? Yeah, I guess... Um when I started my research, when I started my, my PhD, my area was specifically looking at young people that are at risk of developing psychosis so that there's a, a certain criteria that we can use to determine whether people are at risk of developing psychosis or if they're, or if they're not. And, and there's a certain screening tool that mental health practitioners do. And I was very interested to see, you know, if we can, you know, implement lifestyle change prior to the onset of mental illness to try and, you know, use exercise as a preventative way or, or to delay or prevent the onset of psychosis. And so I, I got into working with that particular demographic. It's these young people. So you may have heard of headspace centers yep. um, around yep. Australia. There's around, and there's around a hundred there. So the, Young people um, approach these headspace centers and a lot of them will have, you know, um, depression, anxiety, maybe some substance use issues, uh, some trauma, some, you know, it might just be some, some stress or anxiety as well. So we, we got a lot of referrals to our hospital from headspace of these young people that were at risk of developing psychosis. So I captured those people and tried to use them within my research. Like you said, it has become the whole exercise and mental health has become quite topical at the moment and within the last 10 years there's been like a, an amazing surge of, of research and now there's there's many many meta-analyses out there um brendan stubbs and, and simon rosenbaum who's my supervisor have done some good work looking at the role of exercise and treating you know common mental illness but also severe mental illness like depression anxiety so that research was kind of well established now and, and like you said the focus of my research now is, is towards implementation and, and how we can practically get people more physically active because the evidence is there. It's just a matter of, of actually being able to implement. Yeah. So just backing up a little bit, Oscar, how would you define psychosis? What, what exactly is psychosis and what are some of the risk factors that people should be aware of about psychosis? Yeah. So I guess psychosis it's it's a broad term that's used to describe a group of symptoms that um people exhibit when they're experiencing a psychotic illness so it's not like you say um my psychosis uh you can't diagnose someone with psychosis you can diagnose someone with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder but they will be experiencing psychotic symptoms it's like so it's like saying to someone that you have a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease they don't 
have a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease, they might have hypertension or yeah, um, yeah. or another. T- that's right. So there's a couple of symptoms that characterise psychosis, and they're very broadly defined as positive and, and negative symptoms of psychosis. So the, the positive symptoms of psychosis are simply things that you you wouldn't normally see within someone in the general population. So things that would add to the normal experience, to add to to what would be considered reality. So hallucinations and and delusions are two of the most common positive symptoms of psychosis. And when we talk about hallucinations, they're sort of, you know, a disturbance to reality. So that could be any sort of, any one of the senses. So a lot of the... um, the stereotypes of schizophrenia are people hearing voices, which is very true, but it's also people might be having sort of um, other sort of sensory hallucinations like the sensation of touch on their body. Um, they might be, you know, having senses, uh, smells that aren't actually there or, or um, other sorts of senses as well that can affect how people behave. Then there's paranoia as well um, and other sort of delusions. So people can have delusions of grandeur where they think that they're sort of a, a lot better or some high power. A lot of people might think that they're, that might come from some sort of religious connotations as well, that they might be, you know, the son of Jesus and they're here to impart a, a, a the good word. And we see that a lot within, within clinical practice. So there, there's the hallucinations and delusions, which are a part of the positive symptoms of psychosis. And then the negative symptoms of psychosis are more like your depression and anxiety, uh, depression and, and lack of motivation or loss of interest in certain activities. So things that take away from what's considered normal. So there, we also see more cognitive impairments that are commonly associated in people with psychosis. So it's the, the positive, negative symptoms and then the, the cognitive symptoms of psychosis. What's some of the triggers that might bring on psychosis? How, how, what's the pathway into, into developing a, a, psych, a psychotic episode or into psychosis, if I'm using the right terminology there? Yeah, no, you are. It, it varies for individuals. And um, I've heard people use the, the gun and trigger analogy. So it's, it's sort of like we all have the gun and we're all um, susceptible to psychosis, but there's certain things that can set off that trigger. And for each individual, those triggers are going to be very different and everyone will have different thresholds. Um, so for some one person, it might take something really minor to set off their psychosis. There might be one instance of something, but for others, it could uh, they might be quite resilient to the development of psychosis and they could do be exposed to those things that may exacerbate or set, set psychosis off for a long period of time without actually experiencing any symptoms. So some of those, those risk factors are the exposure to trauma. So a lot of, you know, sexual assault, you know, um, physical assault early in life, um, emotional abuse, sort of um, disruptions within your typical family situations. I see a lot of clients that are affected by just stress of, of university or, or high school stress that, that can set off these symptoms. And we see a lot of bullying in high schools. But we also know that, that drugs play a significant role. So um, um, a lot of my clients have a, a drug-induced psychosis and, and sometimes those psychotic symptoms can resolve quite quickly. But in other people, they can stick around for a long time. And I mentioned a close friend of mine when I was growing up. He experienced a, a, a drug-induced psychosis and, and unfortunately for him, those psychotic symptoms, despite, you know, abstaining from drugs, he, he experienced those symptoms long-term and, and is relying on that medication long-term to, to minimise those symptoms. 
Mm-hmm. And what type of drugs uh, in general, Oscar, create the psychosis? Are we talking about alcohol? Are we talking about, you know, something like uh, the use of cannabis? Or are we talking about more kind of hardcore drugs around heroin, cocaine? Yeah, it, I... Yeah, uh, it's not not my area of specialty, but um, in, in clinical practice, what we see a lot of people um, in methamphetamine and, and ice and in more of those illicit drugs. Cannabis is very commonly used within our population group, and it's, I can't speak of this as a, as a research professional, but I know that the psychotic symptoms can be increased because of the use of cannabis. But um, the threshold for setting it up, I don't think, is as strong with cannabis use as it is for those harder drugs, like those ones I mentioned before. Mm. Yeah, and it's and it's such an emotive topic for some people. You know, oh no, alcohol's okay, it's legal, or people are going nothing wrong with cannabis, or you know, because they may have had positive experience experience with the use of certain drugs. So it's a bit like diet as well. People get very um very protective of their drug of choice. So <laughs> it's a difficult one to talk about because people justify their use uh, a lot of times in a and it's a, like I like a lot of stuff we talk about on this podcast. It depends on the person. You know, some people can have a joint a couple of times a week and they're completely fine. Other people would have, you know, two or three puffs on a joint and next minute or the world is out to get them and they're running around, you know. We've probably all seen people That's like, right. You know? And, and it's really it's really individual and it's hard for um for someone when one of one of our patients might come in and they might say, Well, how come I can't smoke marijuana when a lot of my friends are and and the friends might not be experiencing those psychotic symptoms, but they are, and it's hard to provide that education in that way because they, a lot of the time, they might say it's unfair. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's biology. Biology is not fair, is it? Really, like you know, we're not constantly talking about this in this podcast. That we're not we're not machines. We don't have inputs. You know, it's not you know a system where there's inputs and outputs and everything is is balanced perfectly. We're all complex individual systems. Um, of biology and chemistry. Mm. So yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to have a one size fits all for everybody, just like with exercise and nutrition and everything. So yeah, no, it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting because obviously, you know, in America, there's been a lot of, you know, legalization of things like marijuana and potentially now, you know, mushrooms are going to be legalized, I think in Oregon and Colorado. And, you know, there's, there's, there's arguments for and against, there's arguments about control as well. And, you know, we, we see this increasing in the world and probably will probably come to Australia soon as well about legalization of these things. And, you know, depending on where you sit politically can be a big issue as well. So yeah, these things do change. And I don't want to get into a kind of a whole conversation about drugs, but it, it is an interesting one. And I know it's not your speciality. So um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to probe you to come up with answers that um, mm. <laughs> where you've got to, you've, no, yeah. <laughs> you've got to kind of, uh, I, I can, I mean, I, sorry, you go. No, I was going to say I'm not, I'm not going to probe you down and get you uh, make you feel uncomfortable and ask you for um, you know, a whole kind of position statement on <laughs> drugs in in the country. So um, we might just move on with that one and say, look, it is a factor that that affects psychosis, just as you know, experience and trauma are as well. And probably that's the next part is um, you spoke about sexual abuse and physical assault and stuff like that. What about other type of traumas, Oscar, that may lead to psychosis? Is there things like, you know, young guys that may have been in the military with PTSD, maybe in a car crash, may have, you know, witnessed a, a, you know, a fairly difficult event in their life, maybe saw a friend pass away or something like that. What sort of traumatic events would bring on this? 
yeah, for sure. So PTSD is extremely, um, is highly associated with the experience of psychotic episodes. So we see a lot of people that might have psychosis, but they might also have those comorbid psychiatric, uh, psychiatric diagnoses as well. So as you said, PTSD, I, I mainly work with youth, so I don't really see that many people that might be, you know, first responders or people in the military or, or those sorts of groups. But it's very much um, well established that, you know, traumatic events like the, the sexual assault or, you know, witnessing death early in life are, are correlated with increased risk of psychosis later in life. And so w- something that we have to do as part of our training is be very skilled up in trauma-informed care where we we know what what might set off the triggers for people experiencing those uh, that who have experienced trauma in the past and and be very careful that we're not sort of bringing any of any of those traumas back to the surface we have to be quite sensitive in terms of how we deliver that so for example I know that for people experiencing PTSD coming back from the military, um, we saw it in the Invictus Games just recently that, you know, sudden loud noises during the events like helicopters or the guns firing for the start, um, these are things that can bring up triggers for people. And so we just have to be quite mindful of that um, when we're prescribing exercise. And, And same for a lot of our young client groups, a lot of people might have bad experiences with males, uh, young females might have had bad experiences with males in the past and those sort of traumas might be needed to take into consideration. And me being a male, I need to be quite conscious of that when, um, and getting maybe a female clinician into the, the room as well so that we can work in, a, in an effective way. But yeah, it, it, there's, there's all sorts of traumas that can lead to psychosis. Simon, who's my Simon Rosenbaum, who's my supervisor, is, is specialist in, in PTSD, and he's done lots of great work going to refugee settings and looking at the the effects of exercise and how we can improve the quality of life of, of refugees who have experienced trauma. One thing that was really interesting that he's just recently come back from the border of, of Syria and Turkey. I know I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. I'm oh no, just, no, no. This, this, this podcast should be called digression. That's what it should be called. So go for oh, it. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just found it particularly interesting, and he's just come back and was telling me about it and um, how there's a. He went and visited a refugee camp in on the border of Syria and Turkey, where there's a lot of refugees that are coming from Syria in, into into Turkey, and and there's a big refugee camp set up so much so that you you can stand on a hill and and look around 360 degrees, and there's tents set up everywhere full of refugees, and all these refugees they talk about this idea of tension, and tension is the word that they use to describe you know, trauma, depression, anxiety, they don't use the same terminology as us, but they use this word tension. And they're saying that Simon was interviewing a few of these refugees and they're saying that what, one of the main things that actually helps with this tension is is playing soccer, um, playing football. They've got these nice established football communities within these refugee camps and they have competitions and they, they verse each other. And the other thing that they said is that it was actually – a way of distracting these young kids, particularly young boys away from terrorist groups that come into these refugee camps and recruit young kids who essentially have no purpose. And they come in and they, they say, you know, here's, here's a gun, come and play with the big boys. 
Um, and so using these soccer groups and, and other sporting activities might potentially be a way of, it sounds extreme, but counter-terrorism and, and, and stopping the recruitment of these young groups and building these terrorist organizations overseas. Um, I thought that was quite interesting work that, that's been done. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, on that same note, like about about refugees last year, I I, I got the the great fortunate um, honour of presenting at TEDx Perth, which is the second biggest TEDx event in Australia. So it's like two thousand people in the audience. Um, but one of the ladies, that, yeah, it was awesome. But one of the ladies that was on the on the on the day as well, and she got a stand ovation, and rightly so, Esther Onik. Um, I forget actually which country she came from, and it's really I have to apologise for that. But I, I, she, she came from Africa to Australia as a refugee. But when she was a kid in one of the refugee camps, she got her hands burnt pretty badly, and so she was left with that sort of physical uh, scarring. And that um, I suppose the challenge um, going forward. But you know, despite all that, I came to Australia was I think the first person in her family to go to university. You know, absolutely an amazing young woman. And, um, you know, she was speaking about in the refugee camps and how long she was in there and stuff like that. And to your point, you're talking about exercise being a distraction as well. One thing I've been thinking about recently, and I want to get Esther on the podcast this year, and I've been talking to some people who have been refugees, it's just about the whole, how do you cope in that environment? You know, mentally, how do you go to sleep? How do you relax? How do you focus on your health? How do you stay fit and healthy? Because all of these things can help you, you know, sort of... <laughs> stay engaged and keep going and it must be extremely difficult so it's interesting that you brought up this point about Simon and, and this you know this word tension that incorporates all of these things because it, it would be a quite difficult environment to to stay healthy to stay focused to stay positive to stay sort of on task and we've seen all these stories about you know especially here in Australia we've seen stories about people being in refugee camps or being in detention centers for months and years on end. I, I can't imagine what that's like, how, how, you, how you focus on your health holistically. So very interesting points that you raised there. And, and also as well about how good exercise can be at sort of helping people get through those bad times. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's some NGOs that are doing some really good work over in those those refugee centres and there's lots of stuff being done on counselling and, and those sorts of like psychosocial supports. But I think at present there's very little stuff that's being done on exercise and I'm not the, the person to speak to about this, but from what I've heard is that, that exercise hasn't really been considered at the forefront, at least within a few of these refugee centres that Simon's visited. So um, he's been in a fortunate position to teach you know, these the support workers about how they can simply encourage their, the people within those communities to increase their physical activity levels because, like you said, the, the very difficult situations that they're living with and, and high exposure, high rates of trauma and depression and anxiety. And if we know that the evidence is there, that exercise can improve those sorts of things. And so if we can get more of it happening within those communities, then it will lead to greater outcomes for those people. Yeah, yeah. So, so Oscar, um, with sort of that combination of clinical work and your research and your experience, um, what sort of sleep issues have you seen with, with people who may have psychosis or, you know, in general with, with a mental illness? What sort of sleep, sleep kind of quantity or quality issues do people present with and what's some of the common, the common themes that emerge from, from your work? Mm. It, it, it was a really interesting one. I think I, I got interested in sleep through my clinical work because as an exercise physiologist, my primary aim was to get people more physically active. So 
Um, we're employed primarily to reduce the cardiometabolic risk factors that are associated with mental illness. So um, I should mention, I know it's a, it's a bit off topic, but people with mental illness die at least 15 years earlier than the general population. So that's people with a severe mental illness. Really? Schizophrenia, depression. Yes, that's right. Wow. Yeah, there's a huge mortality gap. We talk about the life expectancy gap of, of the indigenous population, but people with a severe mental illness are dying just as, just as early. And that there's a sort of a trend down in terms of that life expectancy gap. And we know that the, the, this gap in life expectancy is, is largely due, it's a, a third of the reason is due to preventable cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So there's significantly higher rates of, of CBD and diabetes within this population group. So then we look at why. So why is there this high rate of cardiovascular disease and diabetes? And we can bring it down to antipsychotic medications. So when people start antipsychotics, so people experiencing their first episode of psychosis, they get put on antipsychotics. They can expect to gain at least 12 kilos within the first two years of treatment. Um, and and eight centimetres of, of fat around the waist. And you can imagine people are gaining weight so rapidly, what that would do for self-esteem and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, you're a young person and you're body conscious as it is and you first present to a mental health service, you're experiencing all these mental health problems and, and then all of a sudden you're gaining weight. So it's actually one of the biggest deterrents for people to adhere to the medication. So uh, the reason that we're employed, I'll come back to your question, is, is to prevent this weight gain within young people in the early stages of psychosis. And, and one way that we can prevent that weight gain and some of the research that was done within my centre in 2013 was using lifestyle interventions, so exercise and diet, to try and mitigate that weight gain, so try and prevent that weight gain that happens in the early stage. And what they found is that compared to a, a control site that was treatment as usual, so they got usual care, not in addition to this lifestyle intervention, the, the lifestyle intervention program was managed to prevent weight gain, whereas there was that eight kilos in 12 weeks and, and seven centimetres around the waist at that treatment as usual site. So we're able to prevent that weight gain um, through lifestyle intervention. So with this in mind, I was employed as, as a full-time clinician within mental health to, to work on this metabolic health and, and lifestyle. What I found though is, is when trying to motivate people and get them active, that one of the biggest barriers was people were saying that Sure, Oscar, it's, a, it's great and I'd love to exercise more, but I'm just so tired and, yeah. and, and uh, I got no sleep last night or, or, or I got way too much sleep last night and I've got no energy today. So what, what sort of experiences I saw with sleep were, were both ends of the spectrum. So when people are unwell and they're experiencing psychotic symptoms or they're not adhering to medication, those hallucinations and anxiety and ruminating thoughts and you know their stress and all sorts of things can actually keep them up and inhibit sleep and on the contrary then when people can are taking medications one of the side effects of those medications are people are quite heavily sedated and so they they can sleep up to you know 12 13 hours a night so they're actually oversleeping and then with that they're, they're furthermore that they're actually more sedated during the day during their waking hours as well and you can imagine how it, it kind of feels like you have the flu and they, they feel quite heavy. 
in saying that it's not just the medications, it's also, you know, depression does that too to you yourself. If people are severely depressed, they just got no motivation to get out, out of bed and, and be active. So I saw sort of both ends of the spectrum. So it's quite interesting when you're trying to guide exercise to support sleep um, in people that are on one end of the spectrum or the other. Yeah. That's um yeah, very interesting. I suppose a uh, question off the back of that, when you spoke about the weight gain in some of these patients increasing the medication, did you look at the possible prevalent the po- the potential prevalence of like obstructive sleep apnea, which is generally linked to a weight gain? Um, did you look at that in these in these guys around um, you know a sort of high BMI associated with obstructive sleep apnea? Yeah, so at one of the psychiatrists that I work with is is specifically looking into obstructive sleep apnea, and we know that um, especially people at the more severe end of the mental illness spectrum, so people with schizophrenia that have been long patients that have been on medication for their whole lives, have significantly higher rates of of OSA, and we know that's that's very much associated with the weight gain that's associated and, and obesity. So. I think they're all part and part and everything is, is definitely associated. It's not just, you know, changes in the sleep architecture and, you know, changes in the, the quality of, of sleep or, or sleep efficiency. It's actually these physiological changes that are happening in response to weight gain that then contribute to sleep disorders like, it's like OSA. Yeah, because there's another guy called uh, Russell Foster. I don't know if you know Russell. Um, he's got a, actually a very famous TEDx talk. I think he must have like 7 million views. He's a professor out of uh, the University of Oxford in, in, in I was going to say America, in the UK. And uh, Russell is a is an excellent sort of chronobiologist. <clears throat> and he's actually done some research around uh, homeless people um, and those with mental health issues and schizophrenia as well, using longitudinal actigraphy. And when we see this long-term sleep pattern, you can see there's a massive sort of pattern or irregular pattern, so to speak, about people's sleep because, you know, they're asleep during the day for a few days, then they're asleep at night, then they might have big periods of awake. And you kind of, you can use then sleep or poor sleep as a precursor to a psychotic episode or to a schizophrenic event prior to hospitalization. Then maybe to get hospitalized, sleep returns to normal. And then they go back out and either to their home or go onto the street, whatever they might be doing. And then it sort of cycles back again. So it's a kind of a chicken and an egg, isn't it? I think, Oscar, when it comes to that whole relationship with physical health and mental health and sleep, one is driving the other and it's very hard to find cause and effect. But similarly, I think when you make an improvement in one area, you're going to have a positive improvement in all areas. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, completely. And I have a graph that sort of puts puts that in perspective and I like to show that graph to, to my patients because there's a complete bi-directional relationship between, you know, their mood, physical activity, their sleep quality and their fitness and, and their metabolic health. And, um, you know, it's like you said, it's that chicken or egg. So people with a sleep disorder are at much higher rates of mental illness. And, and then like you said, there's protective effects of improving sleep like there is protective effects of, of being physically active then to the later development of mental illness. So it's very much that bi-directional relationship. And the population group that I work with is the people that are at risk of mental illness. They're, they're a vulnerable population, so they're a really important group to see if we can target, provide that early intervention to see if we can then prevent that later in life. So I completely agree with you, Ian. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, Oscar, you one of the reasons, or the, actually the main reason why I wanted to talk to you was um, because of this great paper you put out recently, which was titled, nice big fancy title here, Does Exercise Improve Sleep Quality in Individuals with Mental Illness? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which was published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. So, Oscar, what's a systematic review and a meta-analysis? Because they're all nice big fancy words that... Uh, even I struggle with breaking down sometimes. So what, what is a systematic review meta-analysis? Yeah, I guess systematic reviews and meta-analysis, if you think about like the hierarchy of evidence and, and what we can justify is the most convincing evidence or the most reliable evidence, the systematic reviews and meta-analysis are considered gold standard. So um, it's kind of like a, at the bottom of the chain is more sort of case reports where you're taking an example of one person's experience to see in the case of exercise and mental health, just as an example, does that one person improve over time? What a systematic review and meta-analysis does is it groups many different studies in. So studies, when I speak about the studies, it's talking about randomized controlled trials. So these are, you know, some of the, some of the higher quality trials that we can look at where we randomly assign people to two groups. One group get exposure to the intervention, which, for example, is exercise, whereas the other people do not. So they experience um, um, maybe usual care, treatment as usual, or, or whatever it is, they're not active, they're not exercising. And then what we do is we look at all those random, uh, randomized control start trials, those individual studies, and we pull them together. Um, and using statistical analysis, we, we try and create an overall effect to see among all those studies what is the overall effect that in, in this case does exercise have on, on sleep quality for people with mental illness? So that's what we did within this study. I guess what we, some of the things that we found, and before I get into the, the nitty-gritty of the, the research, but when, when we're doing the search is that there are a lot of papers, that, papers out there that you know, use the terms exercise, mental illness, sleep quality, but within the inclusion criteria of our paper, there's actually very little exercise intervention research that uses sleep as an outcome for, for people with mental illness. So sleep isn't really at the forefront of exercise and mental health research at the moment. And it's something that we address in, in the discussion to say that we, it's such an important topic and we see it clinically, but there's no actual evidence to, to say that there is such a, such a beneficial effect. Yeah, that's one thing that struck me about your paper when I when I went through the uh, in the methods under the figure of the kind of the the Prisma flow diagram. It was like, oh, look at all these papers like that they identify, you know, nearly four thousand papers. But then when you get down to the bottom, when you applied your criteria and removed duplicates and so on, and you know, I was very very pleased to see like not using you took out papers that had no validated measure of sleep because a lot of times in the in the research we see people talking about sleep, but it was either a questionnaire that they designed themselves or a non-validated questionnaire or even a, a very kind of a poor questionnaire. So it's good that, you know, you had these. Yeah. Well, I really, I really like that. But by the time you got down to the end, you basically had eight studies included mm. when you kind of whittle it down. And, and I kind of sat back and went, wow, I would have thought like, <laughs> you know, from my mm. work in, in occupational health and safety and industry predominantly, I've seen a massive relationship just anecdotally between this sort of stuff and what's been reported. And I would have thought, Jesus, I thought there would be more, more papers on this. But again, it just goes to show you that, you know, the scarcity of research around this whole, um, this whole area. So, you know, I was very surprised at this. Um, 
So it's good that you highlighted how little has been done, but also just shows how much we have to do. And it's it's great sometimes to review what's out there and then show what needs to be done in the future around this. So yeah, it was quite interesting. Yeah, I guess I guess we wanted to be quite strict with the inclusion criteria so that our conclusions can be drawn quite effectively. So we, instead of being quite vague and including studies, all people with mental illness, we had people with a diagnosable mental illness according to the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. So we only included these, these groups. We didn't include people with a sleep disorder. Um, there's recent research being done looking at the effects of exercise in people with insomnia. So we, we were specifically looking at people with a mental illness, including substance use disorders. And the, the interventions, they had to be, they couldn't be in acute. There was, uh, when I was doing the, uh, the search, I found a lot of papers look at the acute effects of exercise on sleep with mental illness, but we wanted to see what the effect of sustained longer term exercise was. So we said a, a minimum of at least two weeks of, of the exercise training. So we could see if there's any sort of adaptation to exercise rather than just acute overnight sort of effects. Um, yeah, because some so people... The, the, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was going to say some people who start off on an exercise program may actually have sleep disturbances just got to do with the activity. So it might take, you know, a week or more for them to basically kind of uh, stabilize because we see this a lot with people who may be seriously overweight. That training load sometimes can be, can be difficult for them. Like just like when people go on mm. a new diet, they might experience a lot of disturbances and, you know irregularity in the first week so yeah yeah that's right that's right and and unfortunately i guess would have been ideal if we had more of the the gold standard measures of sleep within this study so we included both subjective and objective measures as part of the inclusion criteria so subjective being self-report and objective being more quantitative measures like the polysomnography and actigraphy, things that you mentioned before. But Mm. um, unfortunately, none of the studies that were included did use those methods, which I guess the purpose of doing these sorts of meta-analysis looks for gaps within the research as well and highlights, you know, areas that we need to work on. And it's definitely something following my PhD that I want to look at is is using more gold standard measures of sleep and seeing if if exercise does induce changes in these levels. Well, I've just been making some notes there, Oscar, for me and you to talk about when we stop recording this podcast because I have about five ideas here. I think we should talk about afterwards. <laughs> so, uh, this could be a uh, this could be this could be a good podcast um, for all of us afterwards. With your uh, interventions, you you list in the paper structured exercise intervention programs, lifestyle interventions with physical exercise, and then sort of Tai Chi physical yoga. With the structured exercise programs, one of the things that people might ask or like look for is what's my best bang for my book if I have a mental illness or I got, some, I got a family member or I just want to feel better? Should I run, swim, lift weights, do a martial art? You know, should I do step aerobics? This sort of thing. A lot of people will be like, oh, well, this works. And when I talk to people, people go, oh, the best thing you can do, you know, is swimming or the best thing you can do is boxing or the, and everybody, because they enjoy it, kind of, you know, become this, preacher almost about what's the best one because it works for them did you find Mm -hmm. sort of any sort of evidence to say what was better or what was worse within this study it was hard to do that because of the the limited amount of papers it's hard to do the subgroup analysis comparing the aerobic exercise or the strength training or yoga but i can talk to it more broad more broadly on the effect of exercise on mental health generally 
So it's such a it's, a, it's such an interesting question that you say because it's one of the most common questions that my patients ask me. It's like, you know, I just want to improve my fitness or reduce my weight and, and I also want improvements in my mood. What's the best thing that I can do? The simple question, um, the simple answer to that question is that um, it's whatever, something is better than nothing and something more is better than something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very simple question. But but essentially what it's saying is that the best kind of exercise is the one that you're most likely to to stick at because I could write someone the, the most ideal program and sure there is evidence looking at the, sort of a dose response relationship between exercise and 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 mental mental health symptoms so that you know the greater volume and the higher intensity of exercise that we do if we talk about metabolic exercise so that that resistance and aerobic combined training has you know a most the most beneficial effect but when you tell that to someone who's you know mentally unwell or they're just starting an exercise program altogether they're new to gyms in the first place that can be quite a daunting proposition and and trying to set you know, breaching the recommended physical activity guidelines of, you know, 30 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous intensity activity, it can be quite daunting. So we like to say anything is better than nothing to start and then try and look at, you know, realistic and achievable ways to progress people according to their, their goals and their physical capacity. So coming back full circle to, to right at the start, it's, it's a very individual approach. And like you said, there's some people that prefer swimming and, and they become a preacher of that. So I would encourage that in those people because it's something that I think that they'll, they'll maintain long term. Yeah, whatever works for them. Back in, uh, we're on season three of this podcast at the moment. Back on in season one, episode three, I interviewed a friend of mine, uh, Mark Keenan, who openly spoke about his kind of battle with depression and, you know, alcoholism and how he basically was kind of inspired through some of the work I was doing because I was running 100k races and 100 mile races, um, ultra marathons. And that sort of kind of give him to kind of push to get up off the couch and start doing 5k park runs. When he started getting up and doing mm-hmm. some runs, he started feeling better. He started losing a little bit of weight. He kind of had a bit of a period of self-analysis where he went, right, I have this unhealthy relationship with alcohol. He quit drinking. He lost nearly 20 kilos. Um, and then over the last few years, you know, he's completed numerous ultra marathons, trail runs. And, you know, it's inspirational to see, you know, Mark change his life. Um, he, basically took a step out of his business to become a, he wants to become a fiction author because um, he was wow. background in engineering and had a success, still does have a successful engineering business here in Western Australia. So it's very, it's very interesting to see, you know, you know, Mark probably could have, as an example, could have had all the counseling, he could have had all the mental health support, but just through the, the intervention of exercise, the, the change, the knock-on change that's had to his life, but also then the positive impact it's had to him. And even his kids have started exercising. Now he goes for a walk with his wife. And, you know, you see that kind of, that thing spread as well, which I think is very interesting. And on the back of that, a number of years ago, <clears throat> talking with a group of guys one time over a barbecue, they were like, oh, I couldn't run 100 kids. And I said, I bet you could. And so next minute then, you know, four of us were decided to run a 100k race in the Blue Mountains outside Sydney. And it was like, well, a year wow. ago, people thought they couldn't do it. Now, now you've just done it. It's not about the time, but it's about, you know, it's not, it's not about the time, how fast you're going to race. It's about what, just completing it. And so it's interesting to see even those guys, like the massive boost and the confidence and how they feel. And these are guys that don't have a mental health disorder. So 
I think as you're saying, anything is better than nothing. And um, whatever you're finding in your in you know works for you. I, I've recently started doing long distance swimming, which I spoke about in the podcast. And um, yeah, it's you see people even just in that training to go from swimming three k's in a session up to like five k's in a session. It's a massive confidence boost for some people, which then transfers into the rest of their life. So. I think it's really interesting how you say something is better than nothing and find what kind of works for you. And then and if you can sustain that long term and you're getting positive effects from it, well, you know, good for you. That's right. Yeah. And I guess the health recommendations we use as a, as a goal of where we can try and build people up. In, in the case of elite athletes, I guess it's quite different that they're usually exceeding those recommendations, those recommendations. But for people that are goal oriented, like, like your friend is and, you know, you know, setting those sorts of uh, making events later in life, sometimes that can be a really good way of motivating people, stripping it back, just simply like one of my patients can't do any push-ups, and I managed to get them from one to five push-ups. They never thought that they could achieve five push-ups. Yeah. That's a good way to motivate them and, and translate that to other aspects of their life. So if they didn't think that they could achieve those five push-ups, I might say to them, look, like you didn't think you could achieve those five push-ups. What about developing that resume so you can actually apply for that job? And, and hopefully that, that motivation and that self-esteem is, is lifted and they can translate improvements in, in physical health, which are quite tangible. We know that when we're improving our fitness because we can see it quite objectively and, and maybe those improvements can translate to other aspects of their life and, and perpetuate that cycle like it did for your friend. Yeah, and recently also as well, we had a guy called Brad Cooper on the podcast from Colorado and Brad's in his 50s and he's doing um, a PhD looking at mental toughness in in, and, uh, in athletes, highly trained and slash elite athletes. But Brad himself, um, you know, has cycle, has won a race where he cycled across America in seven days, uh, you know, nearly 5,000 kilometers or more. He's also ran a sub three hour marathon at the age of 52, you know, and he's like one of these guys that just has, he's got no excuse. He just goes, I don't care about age. I don't care about anything. If I want that, if I have a goal, I'm going to work towards it. I'm going to get it done. And, it's, and, it, and you know, we spoke about all those positive aspects um, and benefits into your life about setting a goal and working towards it. But also what he talks about and what he broke down in that episode was about this kind of meant this model, which has got like resilience, which comes from your past, you know, how much resilience you build up, you know, whether it be adverse, you know, childhood trauma experiences, whatever it might be, you have this level of resilience that you bring. Then you have mental toughness that gets you through the daily grind or gets you through stuff. And then you have kind of this grit and determination that you can kind of pull out a bag and use for events. So I think to your point, Oscar, about people achieve these small goals, like going from one to five push-ups, that then builds up resilience. That then enables the mental mm -hmm. toughness and that allows people then to get the grit to go forward, maybe to go from five to 10 push-ups. So again, like listening to you speak about this, I'm, I'm trying to draw these links with other people I've spoken about. And you can just see this perpetual positive cycle that you can, you can, you can, you can start like through some of this work. You can just really spin this in a good way. So as quickly as we can go downhill with our mental and physical health, we can very quickly come out of it as well. Completely. And I guess just on that, for, for anyone who is, you know, that can relate to, to the weight gain that's associated with mental illness, uh, I wonder if there, there's some people that might be experiencing that listening to the podcast. I, I, I just want to reassure that 
weight is, is one of the motivators for people to engage in physical activity. It's one of the biggest motivators for people to start an exercise program. But and it's really important that we flag that what the evidence says is that weight loss isn't achievable without changes in, in lifestyle more broadly and, you know, improving nutrition intake and improving sleep quality as well. So I, I like to reiterate to a lot of my patients is that you know, let's not focus on numbers on the scales. In some, a better, better goal that might be set is, you know, looking at improvements in fitness or improvements in sleep quality. And, and maybe that's more of a realistic goal that we can set rather than purely changes in weight. I, I just wanted to point that out as a, as a key thing that I see a lot of my patients are, are complaining about the weight, but you know, that we can improve our cardiovascular health significantly independent of any changes in our weight, same as our mood and our depressive symptoms that we can improve, improve those symptoms significantly despite any changes. And that's what all the, the large meta-analyses are saying as well, that you know, there, there may be no changes in weight, but there are significant improvements in a range of other outcomes, which we should really be considering. Yeah, and that's one of the kind of you know results or big conclusions from your paper is that overall uh, exercise had a large statistical significant effect on sleep quality. So therefore, any exercise you do is going to improve your sleep quality. You know, and that you mm-hmm. didn't kind of mention that about you know if you lose ten kilos or if your body fat is less than this, it's like if you move and if you do something, your sleep will improve. Would that would that be a fair? Sorry, yeah. That, that, yeah, completely. That's that's exactly the message that we're trying to get across. Yeah. Um, Oscar, when you were looking at this stuff as well, and I know you didn't discuss this in the paper, but just as a side note, and what about the effect of specific diets on sleep quality uh, with people with mental illness? We hear a lot recently about paleo diets, ketogenic diets, low carb, high fat for you know, people with autism or epilepsy or different sort of conditions. A lot of people report on low carb, high fat or ketogenic or paleo type diets that they have improved clarity, you know, mental health or all of these kind of uh, things seem to, you know, improve. Have you looked at any of those aspects as well? So I haven't focused on the nutritional aspect of it. I have a, a dietitian colleague who's also just completed his PhD who's looking at the effects of nutrition on mental health specifically, so not, not so much sleep. I know that there are various things that are going to impact um, the sleep quality, you know, simply caffeine and and the time of the day that we choose to eat and, and how that coincides with our circadian rhythms and digestion, you know, the, the content and the quality of the food that we're eating also impacts our sleep. One of the, the key areas, I think, and an area of research that personally I think will make all of our clinician jobs redundant is, is the, the idea of the gut microbiota and how that affects things like, you know, cardiovascular disease, depression, schizophrenia. And there's, there's a lot of really exciting evidence that's coming out that looks at the role of nutrition and how that can influence the gut microbiota and how the gut is has this direct pathway with the brain and it can affect all sorts of things relating to our health. So um, it's an area that I think we should all keep a really close eye on moving into the future. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And it's something that keeps coming up on lots of podcasts recently or when you're listening to stuff. And that's an area we're going to be kind of pushing into this year on sleep for performance. We're going to start talking a little bit mm. more about um, diet, nutrition, all these different aspects around it. Uh, we're not going to get too preachy about what's the best diet, but we're trying to figure out what's the key factors that you should adhere to. And you know, some of the common ones that's coming up at the moment when you start overlapping all of these diets, whether it be calorie restriction, ketogenic diet, low-carb, high-fat, paleo diet, Basically, the common thing is eat less sugar, eat less processed shitty food, 
eat like such as fast food, you know, eat less of that <laughs> and eat more vegetables, fruit, you know, meat, fish, and basically the less packaging, the better. They're the kind of common themes that we're, we're hearing of people. Yeah, completely. And yeah. I think there's a, there's a slight movement towards, you know, adopting the Mediterranean diet as um, I think it's included now as part of our recommended guidelines is moving towards a, more of a Mediterranean diet where it's, you know, more, as you say, more fruit and vegetables, healthy fats, um, less processed food. And uh, the dietitian I work with tries to discourage the use of fad diets because for a lot of people, they aren't sustainable. They're, they're unrealistic to maintain. And, and if we're going to try and avoid weight fluctuations, which we know are detrimental to our health, then mm. a more realistic way of looking at it is looking at small modifications that we can make to our diet that are realistic and, and achievable. Yeah. I, I agree, man. And the other thing, like I said to people as well, I'm not a dietitian, uh, you know, either, but I say about that weight fluctuation and when I work with people individually around sleep as well, that weight fluctuation is one of the biggest risk factors, you know, people who go from 70 kilos to 80 kilos or, you know, 75 to 90. It's like, nah, let's, let's reduce that variation. I understand that, you know, mm. for five or six months of the year, you might be training for an Ironman. So your body weight gets down to like 75 kilos. And then when you're not training, you want to kind of splurge out a little bit and you want to enjoy some other foods and you want to do some other things, but don't let your weight get above 80 kilos, for example. You know, and that's one of the things mm. I, I like to do is so if I'm training for an event, I want to keep my weight down between sort of 74, 76 in there. That's my range. I want to get it down, particularly towards the last two or three months up to an event. But if I'm in the off season, I'll allow myself to go up to around 78. But the minute that scales hit 80, that's intervention time. That's like, right, all bets are off now. You know, the, 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 the greedy behavior quits and we start getting ourselves back into range. So setting yourself those kind of minimum, maximum limits where you can have some fluctuation. And I think that's a better way of, instead of jumping on the scales five times a day and look, oh, a pound and a half pound, took, oh, took off a half pound. Or I think giving yourself some range and some wiggle room within your goals can be, can be good as well. And um, to exactly what you're saying as well. I think the fad diet is absolutely crazy. Like, my wife talks about this. She works in a corporate environment and she goes, people come in on a Monday and go, right, I'm on a juice diet this week. And at last, like 11 o'clock, the next minute they're, <laughs> they're slumped over the desk going, I'm going to vomit. I feel so bad. I need food. And then they go out and they start binge eating, you know? And it's just, it's just crazy, yeah. you know? Instead of coming back to some of these principles, like what we were saying there about, you know, fruit and veg and so on. But again, I'm not a dietitian, so these are just some of the things that work for me. And I don't have a six pack, so you're probably listening to the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> The only qualification you need to talk about diet. It's funny, isn't it? Like when you when you see ads on Instagram or Facebook, it's like it's some dude that's ripped with an air pack, and then you know he's giving you a, a diet. And I I'm just like, okay, uh, he's, not, he's not a dietitian, but he has uh, an air pack, so we'll listen to him. You know? Yeah, yeah. The the impact of social media has been so obvious on on a lot of my my clients um, specifically, but a lot of friends as well, and just that whole body image perception and what's a realistic and unrealistic body and and, and then, then there's all these, you know, so-called life coaches and, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, influencers, I think they call themselves, people online that just because they're beautiful, that qualifies them to talk about health. And I think it's quite potentially damaging to how people perceive it because it's, it's the, the media that people read the most. People don't go online into Google Scholar and read papers. They read things that are accessible and easier to see. And, I guess that's a really important point is that we need to, as, as researchers and clinicians with, with evidence and training, be really active. And I think that's a great way 
the podcast that you're doing is a great way of communicating to people and trying to get the the, meta, the message across that it's the evidence that we should be looking at, not personal experience. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I, I started this podcast, Oscar, and started up like the, the website and Facebook and Twitter and all that was to try and promote this message of, you know, freely and available to everybody. It's like th- these are complex subjects and complex relationships. And just because you read in men's health with some guy with an APAC, you know, that this is what he does and it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And also as well, all of those, when you look behind the scenes, a lot of those pictures, they use which is something I've been involved in, they use actually weight cutting techniques. So they will, a lot of their models, let's say again, taking a guy that's 75 kilos, may actually cut weight the week of that photo shoot to get his body weight down to 67 kilos. So he's got, you know, minimal body fat for the photo shoot. But he or she may be on death's door doing that and and feel like Mm. crap. And so when that's finished, they bloom back up to 75, 80 kilos very quickly. Just like a fighter would uh, use strategies to lower weight for a win, and then regain weight afterwards. A lot of these models do the same thing. And on top of that, there is Photoshopping, there is editing, and the whole thing. People have this idea that like less than 10% body fat is where you should be, and that's healthy. You can be less than 10% body fat. You can be a fit athlete, but you may not be healthy physically or mentally. Mm-hmm. I have seen that, and I'm sure you've seen that as well. I have seen mm-hmm. that across the board. You know, People are obsessed with a body image, but they can't perform correctly. They don't feel well. You know, They break out in different skin conditions. So health and fitness is actually can be two separate things. And, and so we need to be careful about that as well. So very much so. Complex relationships. Oscar, what, what would be the what if you were to sum up this paper, this systematic uh, review and meta-analysis, what would be the kind of key takeaways that you would say to people from this who may not be scientists? What what would you be your message to somebody in the street? My message, I guess, broadly is that exercise is a, is a really valuable way that we can try and improve our health. We can improve our mood, but I think what the, the main thing that this paper was highlighting is that we can also improve our sleep. And when our sleep is improved, we can then see follow-on effects in terms of improvements in both our physical and our mental health because uh, I'm sure you've spoken about it on your podcast, but you know, sleep is completely directly linked with with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. If we're not getting enough, it increases our hunger. And if we can use exercise as a way of improving our sleep, then then why not give it a go? In terms of for the other researchers out there, we need more evidence so that we know exactly how much exercise is enough and, and what sort of modality, what types of exercise are the best. I guess the key thing that came out of this study was that one of the conclusions was that exercise, you know, maybe trying to improve their sleep or improve their mood or even improve their fitness. Seeking advice from a qualified exercise professional and not a yeah, inspo Instagram model um, is the best way to go about. Excellent. So, Oscar, you've uh, handed in your PhD before Christmas. So, are you still there? One of the final things I'd like. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we just lost you for a second, but you're back. Yeah, sorry, the final thing you wanted to add was? Oh, the final thing, the final thing I wanted to add is that, um, is like the stigma around mental illness, there's also stigma around exercise. And, and for so many people, they think exercise is going into a gym. But any physical activity is a good place to start. So that could simply be reducing the amount of time that you spend sitting, um, you know, just simply walking to the shops rather than driving or getting off the bus stop, a bus stop early and, and trying to increase those daily step counts is a great way to start. Excellent advice.
Oscar, you've uh, handed in your PhD just before Christmas. Um, what's the next steps now? How, how long do we have to wait till, till we can call you doctor? <laughs> so uh, uh, it's under examination at the moment. So there, there should be some people around the world looking at the paper and, and giving me some pretty intense criticism. <laughs> And then I'll have to apply that feedback and, and resubmit it. Um, but for me at the moment, I'm going back to Brazil and in Europe and Iceland and Norway and different parts of Scandinavia into inpatient psych wards and, and looking at what they do around their exercise programs and with the idea to come back and improve what we do here in Australia for people when they're, they're most severely unwell. So I learned some interesting things overseas and I'm going to put things back to see that we, what we can try and do to improve the health of people uh, the more severe mental illness here in Australia. Excellent. So, Oscar, if people want to follow you on social media, what's your Twitter handle? How can people get a hold of you? How can they follow you? Maybe on Google Scholar, Research Gear, anything else? LinkedIn? Yeah. So, just I guess my Twitter account is just at Oscar Letterman, L E D E R M A N. And that's probably my main social media outlet. Otherwise, feel free to send me an email. It's oscar.letterman at health.newsouthwales.gov.au. Excellent. We'll put all that information, guys, in the show notes. Oscar, thank you very much for doing this podcast today. I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best of luck with this research in the future. And hang on the call because I've got some ideas we should discuss for five minutes. Will do, Ian. Great. Thank you. So that was episode four with Oscar. Interesting conversation. Um, after that podcast, myself and Oscar spoke about future collaborations and research we could do together. So... Hopefully, if we can find some time, we'll be able to do some collaborations there in the future. Um, hope you enjoyed that episode. I really thought it was quite interesting, quite different than some of the episodes we've done previously. So, as always, you can check us out at sleep4performance.com.au. Don't forget to sign up for that monthly newsletter. Lots of good stuff there. You'll get that in the uh, first week of the month, wrapping up the previous month of podcasts, blogs, um, and more information there. And don't forget to head over and check out the Nordic Fitness course there. And the code is SLEEPEND20. Okay, until next month, sleep well.